Well, it's not that surprising that we read about a bunch of kings in the book of 1 Kings, is it? What did you think we were going to read about, kids? Prophets? Well, we get a little bit of prophet action in this, in this passage, don't we? But mostly kings. Now, if you guys haven't looked at this sheet here that Pastor McNeely provided for us, you should, you should look at it. It's very helpful when you're reading through Kings or when you're reading uh, through the Bible and get confused about who the people are, because there's a lot of names and some of them come and go real fast, but then they get referred to over again. One of those is Jeroboam. We keep reading about Jeroboam. We keep running into Jeroboam. His name keeps being mentioned. And of course, it makes sense that Jeroboam would be mentioned when the first king we read about this morning is Nadab, who is the king after Jeroboam in Israel, who was his son. But we also read about Jeroboam with Baasha, who was not his son. And we read about Jeroboam over and over and over again. And the whole question all through this passage of Kings is whether or not there's going to be a good king. Whether or not there's going to be a king in Israel that will turn away from the sin of Jeroboam. So, what was the sin of Jeroboam? Who will tell me? Not a rhetorical question. Yeah, go ahead. He set up what? He set up golden calves so the people could worship them so they would not have to go to Jerusalem exactly. So we've studied that. And we know that that is bad. Right? We know that that is wicked. We know that... The people were supposed to worship in the temple. We know that they were supposed to worship not with images, not with idols. Even if they said they were still worshiping Yahweh, the Lord. Jeroboam was seeking to protect his political power. And he was using religion. He was using worship to try to protect his political power. How sad it is, and what a sad ending to Jeroboam, who could have had a kingdom, who could have had a name that we would compare to David. That's what God said. That if he had simply worshipped God, that God would have Set him up with a, a kingdom that lasted. Well, Jeroboam doesn't. And then in 1 Kings 15.25 we read, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel Two years. Two years is not very long to be king. 
but they get shorter. And the very next verse says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. What exactly was it that he did that was so evil? He led the people into the same sins that his father Jeroboam had led the people into. Now, we already know what's coming if we remember back to the prophecies that God had given about Jeroboam and about the house of Jeroboam. We know that Nadab is going to come to a sad end, right? We know that the end of Jeroboam's house is coming. Not just that Nadab will die, but that all of Jeroboam's line is going to die. It's pretty remarkable if you think about it. We like to think about the Old Testament as very different from how we live today because they had these these prophecies. And the prophecies are remarkable, right? Can you imagine being alive at that time thinking, man, I wonder when Jeroboam's line is going to end. We know it's going to end. We know it's not going to be pretty. We know what's going to happen to his body. Wow. Undoubtedly, some people believed it and some people didn't, right? But those who believed in the Lord and trusted in his word and believed the words of his prophets that he sent knew what was coming. That feels very different from today, right? We don't have these kinds of prophecies where we know exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be an election, right? And, and then, who knows? Maybe we'll get the same president, maybe we'll get some other guy. Here's the thing, though. It's really not that different today. The prophets, yes, they revealed some details of what was coming in the future. What would be the end of Jeroboam's line. They talked a little bit about the future, but mostly what they talked about was what God wants. What God thinks. What God feels. And the thing is, all of those prophecies, they remain true today. We know from these same prophets that God is angry with rulers that lead their people into idolatry and that he will judge them. There is no difference between then and now. It's not a different God. It's not the Old Testament God and then the New Testament God. It's not the time where we knew what 
was required and now the time where it doesn't matter what's required. The time where there were consequences and then the time where now what happens, happens. No. God revealed His will at that time and His will has still been revealed and His coming judgment is still here today with us. And so we read, as we go down the list, starting with Nadab, and then he comes to an end, and that brings the end of Jeroboam's line. All of Jeroboam's family is wiped out, according to the word of the Lord, and Baasha becomes king. Then Elah becomes king, his son. But that's the end of Baasha's line. And then Zimri becomes king. And then Amri maybe becomes king, or maybe Tibni's king. And you. Eh, who's really king? Well, eventually Tibni dies, and then, okay, it's clear now Amri's king, right? It doesn't, give a, uh, it doesn't give a time frame in there in, the, in these particular verses that we read, but if you compare the, the, uh, when things happened, it appears that it's about a two-year window where both Omri and Tibni are trying to be king at the same time. You thought January 6th was bad. One day of doubt and anger and frustration and controversy over who's president. Think about two years of two different men actively claiming the throne. You get a feel for what it's like when it says, verse 21 of chapter 16, the, or verse 22 rather, but the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni. Oh, kind of a, kind of a conflict there, isn't it? Kind of a, a fight. But it's really not that different from the previous transitions, is it? Two people claiming to be king at the same time doesn't differ much from one person claiming to be king and then him being assassinated and the next person claiming to be king. Matter of fact, we don't know why or how Tibni died. It might have been that he was assassinated by one of Omri's supporters. What I want you to see, though, here is this would not be a pleasant time to live in Israel, would it? Nadab, king for two years. Elah, king for two years. Zimri, king for seven days. Omri lasts longer eventually, but two years of conflict with Tibni. But I skipped one. Baasha. Baasha reigns for 23 years. That's a long time. I've got a lot of people in here who aren't 23 yet, right? 
who was president 23 years ago? I mean, I don't even know. I'm sure I could figure it out. Must have been Clinton. <laughs> oh, boy. Forever ago, wasn't it? Baasha did all kinds of stuff. I mean, you're not king for 23 years without doing stuff. Yeah, you're not doing much if you're king for two years. You're definitely not getting much done if you're king for seven days. But if you're king for 23 years, you're getting stuff done. And if you read elsewhere, you get to read a little bit about what he did. And it's, it's not bad stuff. Politically, militarily, pretty successful. But here's the problem. Baasha comes right after Nadab, comes right after Jeroboam's house. And what does it say about Baasha? In our passage in Kings, the focus, the emphasis is very simple. Not what did this man accomplish? What was this king like? What did he pursue? And what we know about Baasha is he pursued evil. Just like Jeroboam again. It can be a little bit confusing for us when we see men like Baasha become king when it's the end of Jeroboam's line, right? And you're thinking, okay, here's the man who's bringing about God's promise. He's, he's ending Jeroboam's king, kingly line. He's, he's doing all the things that God said would happen through the prophet. But he's wicked. He's evil. Now, if you think about it, God uses good men and bad men to accomplish his will, doesn't he? God used King David to accomplish great things for the people of Israel, didn't he? God used Nebuchadnezzar later on. Foreign king. A number of years ago, my dad was uh, traveling somewhere. He was flying on a plane. And he got to talking to the man next to him. And the man was a devout Jew. And they got to talking about the, that particular brand of Judaism. And I don't know the details of it. I don't remember 
but they got to talking about their beliefs. And the man basically said, well, we believe everyone will go to heaven eventually. My dad said, really? What do you do with somebody like Hitler? And he said, well, we believe that Hitler might have been a descendant of the Gibeonites. It just so happens that in family devotions, we read about the Gibeonites this week. Do you guys remember who the Gibeonites were? I mean, that was a long time ago. The Gibeonites were the people that tricked the Israelites into making a peace treaty with them. You guys remember this story? They sent messengers and they, they wore old, worn-out, ratty clothes and shoes and they took moldy bread with them like they'd been traveling forever and they, they made it look like they had been traveling for months and they said, oh, we've come from a far-off place and we would, like to, we would like to make an alliance with you. We would like to be your friends. And the Israelites said, well, how do we know you're not our neighbors? Oh, we've come from a far-off place. This bread was warm when we left. And these wineskins, they were new. And, and so the Israelites said, okay. We promise before the Lord that we will not destroy you. We, we make an alliance with you. Turned out they were from the city next door. The Gibeonites. Now, bear with me. Why are we talking about the Gibeonites? Here's this Jew in 2010, probably. And this Jew is positing something. He's not a Christian. He's not somebody who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he understands something about God and the way that God works. He understands that God will even use wicked men to bring about his will. Here we are in the 21st century and you've got some Jews thinking maybe Hitler is a descendant of the Gibeonites and God is still punishing his people. through wicked men. What I want you to see is that that unbelieving Jew understood something important about God. He understood that God is sovereign. 
even over men like Hitler. Something that's hard for us to believe. He understood that God is able to bring about his will even through the wicked acts of wicked men. Here we are in the book of Kings, looking way back in history to about 900 B.C. And what do we see? We see Baasha, a wicked man, killing all of the family of Jeroboam. Just like God said would happen. And yet, when you read about Baasha, you find that he worshipped the golden calves. And God's judgment is poured out on Baasha. It says, Verse 34 of chapter 15, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. And not only that, when you drop down to verse 7, it repeats the same thing. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, also came against Baasha and his household, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it. God judges Baasha for wiping out the house of Jeroboam. God said this was going to be the judgment on the house of Jeroboam. And then he judges Baasha for doing it. Now, if you're paying attention, you may say, just like the Apostle Paul expects us to say, then why does he still find fault? Right? Why does God still hold men guilty if he's using their wickedness? And this isn't the only place that we see this, of course. As I mentioned, Paul brings up the question. We see it with the Lord judging the nations that he sends in judgment on his people for their sins. He says, I sent you, but you had no compassion. You had no mercy. And now I will have no mercy on you. We can ask ourselves the question, why does he still find fault? And why, as we, if we make it into 2 Kings, 
What's different about Jehu? Jehu also wipes out another house. Jehu ends Ahab's line. And yet Jehu is not judged for that. As a matter of fact, Jehu is commended for it. Now, when we get there, we'll see that there is a difference. One of the main differences being that Jehu was anointed king by a prophet sent from the Lord. And Baasha was not. In other words, Baasha is just an assassinating thug seeking for power, right? But what do we do with that question? How can Baasha be wiping out the house of Jeroboam and be judged for it? Why does God still find fault? You know, it's really simple. God finds fault with wickedness because it's wicked. God finds fault with Baasha because Baasha is worshiping idols. Baasha is pursuing something. And he's pursuing something very different from what Jehu is pursuing, for example. He's pursuing something that's very different from what King David was pursuing. Baasha is pursuing what he wants. That's what Baasha is pursuing. What are you pursuing? What are you pursuing? It's not good enough that you say, well, I come to church with my family. Or I come to church even when I'm tired. Or I was born to Christian parents. None of that tells me what you are pursuing. We read about Nadab We read about Baasha, we read about Elah, Zimri, Amri, Tibni. What were they pursuing? Well, the ones who assassinate, they're pursuing power, right?
We've got the pursuit of evil. Now that makes it sound, I, I think the, the, the danger of putting it that way is that we think, oh yes, pursuing evil. That's not me. I'm not pursuing evil. But the real question is, are you pursuing God? This is why I mentioned before, while we had the vows, the membership vows read, what are they? A promise publicly of what we are pursuing. What we believe, yes, and also what we are doing, what we are pursuing. If you go back to the catechism, you remember that it starts, what is man's chief end? What are you supposed to be pursuing is another way to ask the question. Your end. We're not talking about death. We're not talking about the judgment. Yes, at the end of your life. But that is not your chief end. What are you pursuing? That's your end. Your goal. What you're running towards. And if you're not running towards glorifying God, then you are running towards something else. And we see it worked out in these kings. We see it worked out in their lives. My goal this morning is that each of you would Examine yourselves with a clear eye and be able to actually answer, what is it that I am pursuing? Now, that means my goal is not to try to cause all of you to question your salvation, right? But there are some of you here who know that you have not ever committed to pursuing the Lord. So what are you pursuing? Among those of you who have committed to following the Lord, you know how often you're pursuing something else. And the moment that you're pursuing something else, what you are pursuing is evil. That's why I say pursuing evil is kind of a, a bad way to put it, if we want it to hit home. If you're pursuing your own pleasure, that's pursuing evil. Baasha is pursuing building a strong kingdom for Israel. There's nothing wrong with that. Baasha is pursuing evil. Now I got their names 
confused. Who was the one drinking himself drunk? That was Nadab, right? Was it? Yeah. What's he pursuing? What's he pursuing? He's pursuing pleasures of this life. Maybe he was pursuing forgetfulness. You know, some drink to remember, some drink to forget. How sad. When you read this, and you go through king after king after king, and you see bad king, evil king, evil king, pursued something besides God, pursued something besides his glory, worshipped the golden calves, followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, it feels inevitable, doesn't it? We know what's coming, We've read it before. We've seen the script. And we think, okay, here comes another bad king. Here comes another bad king. You look at this list. Oh, man. We've got pluses and minuses on the two sides. We've got the Israel over here and Judah over here. And so you just scan down the Israel side. Look at all these kings. And, and we've got a helpful key at the top. says, plus represents a good king. Generally speaking. Minus represents a bad king. Generally speaking. All right, let's look. Israel. Bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Half king Tibni, also bad. Bad king, 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 bad king. Assyrian captivity. There's no doubt, there's no question in our minds about what's coming. We know every single time. And then another king in such and such a year, when so and so was king in Judah. Another king in Israel. Oh, I wonder whether this guy will be good. Nope. It's, you don't have to remember which king is bad in Israel. They're all bad. But here's the thing. God sent prophets to warn the kings of Israel. It's not inevitable. Every one of these kings was judged for what he did. He was not made a bad king. He was judged for what he did. He was judged a bad king. And isn't it remarkable that it only takes seven days for him to be judged a bad king. And he wasn't judged for committing suicide, for burning the palace down around himself. What does it say about Zimri? 
Well, yeah, he went in and he was the commander of half the chariots. And Elah, son of Baasha, was king, had been king for two years. And what happens? Zimri assassinates him, becomes king in his place, does what God said would happen, and puts to the sword all of the household of Baasha, did not leave a single male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Then verse 15 Zimri reigned seven days at Tirzah. Then, verse 19, what does it say about him? Because of his sins which he sinned, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And you think assassinating, committing suicide, etc., right? But what's the sin that's called out? Walking in the way of Jeroboam. Seven days as king, and what does he do? He worships the golden calves and leads the people into his sin. It says, and in his sin which he did, making Israel sin. Of course he was judged for all of those sins. Yes. And yes, those sins are called out by being included in the text. We don't read about anything that he was planning to accomplish or anything like that. We just read, here's what he did. Oh, here's how he came to power. Oh, he was an, another assassin. Great. No. Yeah, we, we've definitely got those sins being judged. But what's called out is his worship, like Jeroboam, and leading the people into sin. What was he pursuing? Idolatry. That's what he was pursuing. The pursuit of evil means the pursuit of anything besides God's glory. That could be pleasure. That could be power. Generally, what it means is you're pursuing what you want. That's the way to generalize it. I want, and then what happens? Your wants are immediately in conflict with other people's wants, right? And you're fighting. You're fighting with your brother fighting with your sister, fighting with your mom, fighting with your dad. But ultimately what you're fighting is you're fighting God's will. You're found fighting with God when you are seeking your own will rather than His. And so the consequences of evil begin to flow into this world. And what does it look like? 
a political disaster. Assassinations and instability in the world. But that's when you're king. You know, when you're just a dad, what does it look like? The Apostle Paul writes about it in Galatians 5. He calls it biting and devouring one another. Why do we bite and devour one another? Because we're seeking what we want rather than what God wants. What are we pursuing? The consequences of evil begin to come, but ultimately it's God's judgment on evil that, it, that is the final consequence. God even uses death as one of his tools to drive his people to himself. All through this, like I said, it feels inevitable. But every one of these kings had the opportunity to repent of Jeroboam's sin and to follow God. As a matter of fact, when you've got the prophet who comes and delivers this judgment on Baasha, it's the same as the judgment that had come on Jeroboam, right? So many times, God sends the warning of his coming judgment. And nobody does anything. They just keep living. They just keep doing the same thing. But you, every one of those times, what you have is God's mercy in offering another chance to repent. If Baasha had repented, God would have relented. If he would have relented with the city of the enemies of God and the enemies of his people, that terrible, wicked city of Nineveh, would he not relent over his people, Israel, their king? So here it is. Some of you are pursuing your own will, your own desires, your own pleasures, simply going through life, going to school, going to work, coming home, only thinking about what you want. Instead of thinking about what glorifies God. Repent. This is the message of God's prophet to you today. When God's judgment comes, 
he will destroy the wicked. But the righteous he will save. No. None of you are righteous on your own. But he will forgive. You will be made righteous if you simply put your faith in his son. When the prophets gave the warnings, how hard is it to repent? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to admit I was wrong. It's hard to admit I did bad. It's hard to admit I sinned. I was selfish. I was angry. I was self-seeking and self-serving. I was not concerned for my neighbor. I was not concerned for God. I was not concerned for His glory. Every single time, it's hard to confess. It's hard to repent. It's work. It requires us to be humble enough to say, I was wrong. We can't even admit when we stepped out of bounds on the soccer field with the ball. Right? We can't even admit when, when the ball crossed over the line into the goal. No, I, I kept it out. We can't even admit when we forgot. Because why? Well, shows our own weakness, right? See, it shows our lack of care for somebody else. I said I would pray for them. And then I forgot. I don't really want to admit that. I've been praying for you. I'm sorry. I forgot. It's hard, isn't it? I've been pursuing idols. I've been pursuing golden calves. Oh... I've been pursuing my own will. I'm sorry. God, please forgive me. I desire to worship and glorify you with all my strength. But my strength is so small. Help me. Help me. You remember the man who spoke that way to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Are you too proud to say that? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Don't be like Omri, Zimri, Tibni, Asa, Jeroboam, no, not Asa. Nadab. Jeroboam, 
Elah, Baasha, the list of proud men goes on and on and on who have heard the word of God, who have heard the calls to repentance, and who refuse to turn and worship him. But when we worship him together, and he is glorified, what a kingdom we make. It's not political. It's not a kingdom of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom, and God is building it here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how often we turn aside from your commands and begin to seek our own desires. The things that we think will make our life happy. Like alcohol. Or sleep. Or games. Father, there are so many things that we think will make us happy. The newest pair of shoes being better at our favorite sport, having a better job. Father, all of these things lead to emptiness and to disappointment. So now we run after you. We've seen how empty the promises of Satan are. We know that the temptations that we so easily succumb to do nothing but bear us down, entangle us, and keep us from running to you. And so, Father, cut our bonds. Free us from our sins. Wash us and make us holy, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.